The United States of America is a nation built upon the promise of religious liberty. Our founders honored that core promise by embedding the principle of religious neutrality in the First Amendment. The Court's decision today fails to safeguard that fundamental principle. It leaves undisturbed a policy first advertised openly and unequivocally as a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Because the policy now masquerades behind a facade of national security concerns. But this repackaging is window dressing, and it does nothing to cleanse the presidential proclamation of the discriminatory animus that President Donald Trump repeatedly conveyed as a candidate, as president-elect, and as president. By now, the statements at the heart of this case are disturbingly familiar. I detail many of the pertinent statements in my dissenting opinion, but here I will recall a sampling of them. During his presidential campaign, then-candidate Trump called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. That campaign pledge remained on the president's campaign website until May 2017. Several months into his presidency, and after the issuance of the first two executive orders in this case. As a candidate, Trump made many denigrating statements about Islam. For example, he stated, and I quote, Islam hates us, and we're having problems with Muslims, and we're having problems with Muslims coming into this country. He blamed terrorist attacks on Muslims' lack of assimilation and their commitment to Sharia law. And he opined that Muslims, quote, do not respect us at all. Later on during his campaign, Trump started to use different terminology to describe his ban on Muslims because, in his words, people were so upset when he used the word Muslim. As Trump put it, he started, and I quote, talking territory instead of Muslim. One week after taking office, President Trump issued the first version of the travel ban, often referred to as EO-1. As President Trump signed EO-1, he looked up and said, we all know what that means. The next day, one of the president's advisors told the media, when Donald Trump first announced it, he said, Muslim ban. He called me up. He said, quote, put a commission together. Show me the right way to do it legally. After EO1 was halted by the lower courts, the, president's issued, the president issued a new version of the travel ban, often referred to as EO2. While litigation over EO2 was ongoing, President Trump stated that EO2 was just a, quote, watered-down version of the first one, end quote. And he reiterated his belief that it was very hard for Muslims to assimilate into Western culture. The president also took to Twitter and sent a message stating, quote, we need a travel ban for certain dangerous countries, not some politically correct term that won't help us protect our people, 
close quote. He also tweeted that the travel ban should be far larger, tougher, and more specific. Then in September of last year, the President issued the proclamation at issue in this case, often referred to as EO3. He later retweeted three anti-Muslim videos entitled, quote, Muslims destroy a statute of Virgin Mary. Quote, Islamic mob pushes teenage boy off roof and beats him to death. And quote, Muslim migrant beats up Dutch boy on crutches. Close quote. When asked about these inflammatory videos, the White House connected them to the proclamation, responding that the president, and I'm quoting here, has addressed these issues with the travel order that he issued earlier this year and the companion proclamation. Take a brief moment and let the gravity of those statements sink in. Again, there are many more. Then remember that most of these words were spoken or written by the current President of the United States of America, the man who issued the three executive orders at the center of this case. Despite numerous opportunities to do so, President Trump has never disavowed any of these hurtful statements. No matter how hard the government tries to launder the proclamation of its discriminatory taint, all of the evidence points in one direction. President Trump campaigned on a promise to implement the Muslim ban, translated that campaign promise into a concrete policy, and made several statements linking that policy in its various forms to anti-Muslim animus. And contrary to the majority's conclusion, the government has not come forth with a legitimate national security reason that justifies its policy of exclusion. In fact, as my dissenting opinion sets forth in full, there are many reasons to question the thoroughness of the secret worldwide review that the government asserts it undertook. The government has not convincingly explained why the current vetting and visa processing scheme erected by Congress has been insufficient to achieve its asserted national security concerns. And, as Justice Breyer further details in his dissent, there is powerful evidence that the waiver process is a sham. Faced with all of the evidence in the record, a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim animus and not by the government's asserted national security rationale. The majority seeks to avoid the straightforward conclusion by asserting that the executive branch deserves deference in the sensitive realm of national security and foreign relations. But deference is different from, is different from unquestioning acceptance. And the executive's discretion in the national security arena does not give the president free license to violate the Constitution. Unlike the majority and its concurrences, I am unwilling to throw the Establishment Clause out the window merely because the government invokes nebulous national security concerns. The First Amendment stands as a bulwark against official religious prejudice 
and embodies our nation's deep commitment to religious plurality and tolerance. Instead of vindicating those foundational principles, today's decision brazenly tosses them aside. In upholding an executive policy motivated by anti-Muslim animus, the majority opinion upends this Court's precedent, repeats tragic mistakes of the past, and turns a blind eye to the pain and suffering that the proclamation inflicts upon countless families and individuals, many of whom are American citizens. Let us remember that the plaintiffs in this case, in these cases, are American citizens. Just weeks ago, the Court rendered its decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop, which applied the bedrock principles of religious neutrality and tolerance in considering a First Amendment challenge to government action. The majority does not apply these principles equally here. In both instances, the question is whether a government actor exhibited tolerance and neutrality in reaching a decision that affects individuals' fundamental religious freedom. But unlike in Masterpiece, where a state civil rights commission was found by a majority of this court to have acted without the requisite neutrality towards religion based on statements of certain commissioners, the court stands unwilling to hold the government actors in this case accountable for breaching the First Amendment's guarantee of religious neutrality and tolerance. Notably, the majority in this case fails to even acknowledge, let alone grapple, with its recent decision in Masterpiece. Today's holding erodes the fundamental principles of religious tolerance and neutrality that the Court elsewhere has so emphatically protected, and it tells members of minority religions in our country that they are, in fact, outsiders, not fully members of the political community. The Court's holding here is all the more troubling, given the stark parallels between the reasoning of this case and that of Korematsu versus United States, in which the Court confronted an executive order that authorized the forced relocation and incarceration of thousands of Japanese Americans. In Korematsu, the Court gave, quote, a pass to an odious, gravely injurious racial classification authorized by that executive order. As here, the government invoked an ill-defined national security threat to justify an exclusionary policy of sweeping proportion. As here, the executive order in Karamatsu was rooted in dangerous stereotypes about, among other things, a particular group's supposed inability to assimilate and desire to harm the United States. As here, the government was unwilling to reveal its own intelligence agency's views of the alleged security concerns to the very citizens it purported to protect. And as here, there was strong evidence that impermissible hostility and animus motivated the government's policy. Although a majority of the court in Karamatsu was unwilling to uphold the government's actions based on a barren 
invocation of national security, the dissenting justices warned of that decision's harm to our constitutional fabric. To quote Justice Murphy's, Murphy's prescient warning, it is essential that there be definite limits to the government's discretion, as individuals must not be left impoverished of their constitutional rights on a plea of military necessity that has neither substance nor support. Similarly, Justice Jackson lamented that upholding the government's policy in Karumatsu would prove to be a, quote, far more subtle blow to liberty than the proclamation of the order itself, because the court's willingness to tolerate would endure. The majority here <coughs> ignores those warnings when it should have taken them to heart. Fortunately, in the intervening years since Karumatsu, our nation has done much to leave its sordid legacy behind. Today, the Court takes the important step of overruling Karumatsu, denouncing denouncing it, quote, as gravely wrong the day it was decided, close quote. This formal repudiation is laudable and long overdue but it does not make the majority's decision today acceptable or right. Nor should it mark the the devastating implication of today's decision. In fact, Korumatsu itself is often cited as one of the first cases in which the Supreme Court applied strict scrutiny to race-based discrimination, something the Court does not do today. But that silver lining to the decision in no way detracts from Karamatsu's disgraceful legacy. The same is true here. Regardless of the good the majority does by expressly overruling Karamatsu, no one should forget what the Court actually does today. It blindly accepts the government's invitation to sanction an openly discriminatory policy motivated by animus towards a disfavored religious group, all in the name of a superficial claim of national security. In doing so, the Court redeploys the same dangerous logic underlying Karamatsu and merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. History will not look kindly upon the Court's misguided decision today nor should it. For our Constitution demands and our country deserves a judiciary willing to hold the coordinate branches to account when they defy our most sacred legal commitments. Because the Court's decision today has failed in that respect, with profound regret, Justice Ginsburg and I dissent.